Go ahead and grab a Bible and uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4 today. So uh, we are beginning a new series that uh, I'm calling Truth Over Trends, and uh, over, the next, over the next few weeks we're going to be looking at different trends that are popular today in our culture that are, that are widely held. We're going to be looking at certain beliefs and ideas and practices uh, that are very prevalent in our culture today. And what we want to do is see how they compare, how they stack up to really the truth of God's word as revealed to us in scripture. So, so I would say that uh, most of us are concerned about the direction of our country uh, spiritually and morally. I, I, think, I, I think most of us are concerned about uh, where our culture is headed. I think when you, when you consider... Uh, the sexual revolution that we are observing right now, the transgender movement. I, I think when you see the philosophy of really using racism to combat racism, uh, when you see this devaluation of marriage and family, and really when you see the politicalization of everything in society. So everything now is political. So sports have become political. Um, you know, Hollywood is political. Math has become uh, political. And so when you look at everything that we're observing just over the last five to ten years, I, I think it does create significant concern for what the future holds and, and where we're really going as a country and as a culture. And I think when you consider the extraordinary change that we're seeing and when you consider the extraordinary pace of change that we're seeing, I, I think it really begs the question, what's driving the change? What's really behind all of what we are watching uh, day to day uh, in, in our society today? What's, what's really the undercurrent that is really pushing all of this that we're, that we're seeing? And, and I believe, and I would submit to you, that what we're seeing in the undercurrent and what's driving all of what we're seeing is really a rejection of absolute truth. I, I think we are living in a time, and, and you know, this is not my idea, sociologists have made this observation, that we are living in a post-truth world. That we're living in a world where the truth really isn't important anymore. I, I think we're living in a culture where we value experience and emotion over truth. We're living in a time when feelings have been elevated over facts. And this is the cultural moment that we're living in. And I think what we're also seeing, and this is rampant on college campuses all over the United States, and we're really seeing this it's been this way for several years, but we're really seeing the consequences of it. But a, a, a radical skepticism that exists on college campuses all over the United States that we can even know anything for sure. That's what we're seeing. And uh, this radical skepticism is called postmodernism. And really postmodernism is is the belief that we can't know anything for sure. That nothing's in concrete. That uh, all ideas are equally valid. 
and that truth is relative. In fact, you could summarize postmodernism this way, there is no truth. That's what's driving our society today. That's, that's the undercurrent of what is held among the elite in academia, um, in politics, and in, in Hollywood. Either the truth doesn't exist or we can't know the truth. One of those two options. Now church, I would like to, I would like to just submit to you today that the assertion that there is no truth is not only illogical, but it's insane. First of all, I'd say that the statement there is no truth is illogical because when you think about the statement there is no truth, there's, you, what you're saying is you're saying there's at least one thing true. There is no truth, right? And so really it's a self-refuting statement just from the get-go. And so it's not logical to, to make a truth claim that says there are no truth claims. It would be like me standing up and saying, in English, you know, I can't speak a word of English. It's the same thing. It's a self-refuting statement. And so, so to even utter the statement, there is no truth or the truth can't be known, is really a truth statement about knowing truth, or at least that truth. And secondly, I would say that this statement that there is no truth is not just illogical, but it's insane. I mean, when you, when you, when you, when you think about it, when somebody is rejecting the truth, uh, really what they're doing is they're placing themselves in a completely irrational situation because the, the entire universe runs on absolute fixed truth. I mean, our universe is governed by absolute truth. You think about the laws of nature, you think about the laws of science, which are really the laws of God. Uh, those laws are inviolable. I mean, you can test them and they are 100% consistent. All you have to do is jump off a 10-story building and you can see. Because 10 times out of 10, gravity is going to kick in and do its thing. And so it's really an insanity to reject, to reject absolute fixed truth. I mean, think about all the people in our society that depend on absolute truth every single day. I mean, just consider how engineers rely on absolute truth to design bridges and highways and build houses and buildings and, you know, machines and that kind of thing. Think about how the truth matters to pilots flying airplanes. Think about how the truth matters to passengers of those airplanes who are being flown by those pilots. The truth certainly matters, right? The truth matters to astronauts who are trying to get to the International Space Station and back. The truth certainly matters to soldiers who have to plot coordinates to, to the exact specifications. And if they don't do it right, innocent civilians will die and probably they will die themselves. How about this? Truth certainly should matter to your brain surgeon if you've got brain surgery scheduled next week. So truth matters in every level of society. We understand this. We don't even think about it. We, we take it for granted. And so all of this points to the truth is real and it matters and it can be known. Jesus says it like this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, church, what is he talking about when he, when he says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free? What kind of freedom will you have? Well, 
I think the answer to that is, is this. You're free from living a lie. You're, you're free from the painful consequences of self-delusion and self-deceit, which is exactly where our culture is today, living in self-delusion. And so the good news is that God has revealed to us truth in creation. God has revealed to us truth in our conscience. And most importantly, God has revealed to us the truth in his holy word. And that's where I really want us to start this morning in the word of God. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 in just a minute. But let me just kind of set it up for you. Uh, this way. Paul is writing this letter. This is his second letter to the young pastor Timothy. And uh, he is, he's really challenging this young pastor to, to a main point in, in chapter four. And that main point is he's, he tells Timothy, I want you to preach the word of God. I want you to preach the word. And he gives him two reasons for it. And he says, I want you to preach the word because, because you know what? There's, there's going to be a day of judgment one day, right? There, the, you know, there's, there's going to be a time when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. So you need to preach the word. And, and, then, and then secondly, he says, you, you need to preach the word because there's going to be a time coming when, when people will not endure sound teaching anymore. There's going to be a day when people will turn away from the truth and they will wander into myths. There's going to be a day when people will pursue teachers who will teach them what their itching ears want to hear. And you know what Paul tells Timothy to do in that situation? Preach the word anyway. Preach it in season and out of season. Preach it when you have a great audience and a receptive audience and a humble audience and preach it when you don't preach the word that's what he says so i want us to look at this passage and then make some applications for where we are in this cultural moment that we're in today so i'm going to ask if you're willing and able would you please stand together for the reading of god's word this morning so paul says this i, I charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season. Repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. What I want to share with you this morning, just right from this passage, is, is really just three myths that we, that we as a culture have a tendency to really buy into. Three myths that are prevalent today in our culture. And then I want to talk about not turning away from the truth, as he describes there, but I want to talk about the opposite of that, how we can turn to the truth. All right, so let's look, at, let's look at these myths. Myth number one, you've heard it said, right? Live your truth. 
This, is, this myth is prevalent in our society today. You have to live your truth. You have to do you. You hear people saying it all the time. People will make statements like this. For example, I've really been trying to live my truth lately. You ever heard that? Or how about this? I, I admire the way she speaks her truth. Or some people will say, well, yeah, we kind of disagree. I mean, she has her truth and I have my truth. We hear this all the time. It's, it's really a part of American culture, right? And so this, this concept of live my truth, really what it means is it's, it's, it's really a combination of opinion and experience coming together under this umbrella of this is my truth. So it's opinion and experience. And it's a powerful argument because it's really unarguable. You can't refute it. When somebody says, this is my truth, what are you going to say to that? Because, because really, there's, there's no counter to, really, to that claim. And, 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 so, and so, you know, a lot of people will, will pull that card, and it's kind of the trump card, if you will, in any kind of discussion. Well, this is, you know, you have your truth, and this, you know, and I have my truth, and it kind of ends the discussion. But here's the problem with it, church. There is no such thing as your truth. There's only the truth. And what I mean by that is when somebody says I, I need to live my truth, what they're saying is I don't really care about the facts as God sees them. I only care about my experience and my opinion of that experience as I see it. Now this is not anything new. This concept of live your truth is really not anything new. There's an entire book of the Bible about this. It's called the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is in the Old Testament, and it's, and it's a, it's a, it's a historic, it's a, it's a narrative, it's a history of, the, of God's people that's characterized by two things, perversion and bloodshed. Do you want to know why? Because everybody was living their truth. In fact, let me just show it to you. Judges 17, 6, the writer of Judges says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You know what the writer of Judges is saying? Everybody was living their, their own truth. You see, the truth is, there's no, there, back then there was no standard that the people were accountable to, so people just kind of followed their feelings. People just did whatever they wanted to do. And uh, their feelings are what determined what was right for them. That's why there is so much perversion and bloodshed in, in the book of Judges. Everybody was very simply living their truth. Now, as I said, there, there's really no such thing as your truth. There's only the truth. And uh, let me just show you this from God's word. I, I think here's the truth about God that we need to really dial in on. And it's this, first and foremost, God never changes. God never changes. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. He's not like the shifting sands, you know. He's not like the wind blowing, you know. He's, he's, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and then secondly, here's what I would say about the truth. It's this, that, that, that God not only never changes, but he never changes his mind. He never changes his mind. Look with me at Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
So God is completely faithful to his word. And his word never changes. Times change. But, the, but, his, but his word never changes. And what we see, thirdly, is God's word is truth. Jesus is praying for his disciples on the eve of his death. And in John 17, 17, he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God never changes. He, he never changes his mind. His word is truth. And then here's the kicker. We can know truth because we can know God. See, truth has been revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, John records this. And this is eternal life that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so there's not your truth, there's only the truth, and the truth is a person. It's rooted in the nature and in the character of God. And so this whole concept of, of live your truth really doesn't, doesn't exist. There's only the truth. But there's a second myth, and I want to share this with you, and it's, it's this one, follow your heart. That's myth number two, follow your heart. Now, Follow your heart is, a, is really a, a modern day creed. It is accepted by millions and millions of people today. This creed of follow your heart. It is, really, it, is, it is really the statement of faith, if you will, of pop culture today. And, uh, and so you see it in the media. You see it uh, all over the place. You see it in entertainment and Hollywood I think the theme of every single Disney movie the last 20 years is follow your heart. I, I really do. I'm not kidding there. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie Frozen? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've got a daughter or a granddaughter, you've seen it 50 times, right? It's what you've seen. Um, so, so, yeah, that, this movie really took the world by storm of like five or six years ago. And uh, it really captures the essence of this modern day myth. That we, uh, that we are being, you know, just submerged in this follow your heart myth. You know, the, the story in the, in the movie um, Frozen has a character by the name of Elsa. And she sings a song that really describes this so clearly uh, and, and just and, and so amazingly. So she's, she sings this song. In the first stanza, she's describing modernity. She's describing the traditional self. And li listen, listen to what she says. She says, she says, don't let them in, don't let them see. You must be the good girl you were always meant to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Now, what she's describing is kind of the modern self of we all need to fly in formation we need to do what the culture tells us to do. We need to submit to our authorities. We need to, you know, we need to kind of fly in formation. Um, you know, we, we, need, we need to conform to what society tells us, you know, that we are. That's, that's, what she, that's what she has been affirming in her life. But she makes a change. And the change comes in the second stanza. She embraces, she embraces post-modernity. Listen to this. This is what she says. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. 
I'm free. Now, did you hear that? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. It's time for me to break through and show the world who I really am because there's no right, no wrong. I can do whatever I want. That is called the gospel of secularism there, and that is follow your heart. That's exactly what it is. And so the problem is, is that it's a false gospel because here's the thing, church. Behind this, this idea, this myth of follow your heart is the belief that inside of our hearts is a compass. And that compass points to true north. And if you'll just follow the compass inside of you, it will lead you to happiness and contentment and significance. That, that your heart will always point you in the right direction. You just have to have the courage to follow it. And that's, the, that's at the core of really this, this myth. And it's basically, if, you know, if you're lost, the gospel is follow your heart. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. Let's just kind of camp right there just for a second. And let's just consider this. What does your heart tell you most of the time? Think about it. You know, uh, your heart has probably told you things you would not want to repeat in this room because I know mine has. You guys track it with me? Do you know that my heart often tells me to live for myself? My heart often tells me to put myself before others, to not consider their needs, their interests, but to consider only what makes me happy. My heart tells me that all the time. You know, my heart, my heart has a tendency to think the best of myself and to think the worst of others. Now, if you like me, I'll think the, I'll think the best of you. But if you don't like me, then you're out of luck. And so many times, my heart will extend to myself grace for my failures and my shortcomings. But when somebody else fails me, then I just, I just kind of write them off in condemnation. That's my heart. And I'm not kidding. And I would bet if you were honest, that's probably pretty close to where your heart is too. You see, the truth is my heart, like yours, has serious problems. In fact, what we see in Scripture is, is, the, is, is, is the reality that I have heart disease. That we have heart disease. And that this this myth of follow your heart your heart is nowhere found in scripture never once does it say that because it communicates to us a picture of the heart that is diseased that is broken and you see it in jeremiah 17 9 where the prophet jeremiah says it like this the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it Jesus picks up on the theme and then begins describing the symptoms of this diseased heart. He, he says this in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now church, I don't know about you, but, but from what I'm reading, the last thing in the world I need to be following is my heart. The last thing. Our hearts don't tell us the truth. They only tell us what we want to hear. Our hearts do not save us. We need to be saved from our hearts. And that's the promise of the gospel. 
that through the power of God and the love of God, the, the death of Christ on the cross, we have access into his grace by faith where our hearts can be born again, our hearts can be new and be made new in his image. And so really what this means is our hearts were never designed to be followed. Our hearts were designed to be led. Our hearts are not adequate to serve as gods that we, that we worship and follow. They were designed actually to believe in God. That's why Jesus told his disciples on the eve of his death in John chapter 14 verse 1. He says this, let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. He's telling us, don't, he's telling the disciples, whatever you do, don't follow your heart because your heart is troubled. What you need to do is believe in God. You see the difference there? And so the last thing we need to be following is a diseased heart. Myth number three. Well, let me just, let me just say this before we go to myth number three. You know, when we did that whole series on the 23rd Psalm, I I made the case just right from the 23rd Psalm is we have a shepherd who leads us and guides us. Like we don't need to follow our heart. We need to follow the shepherd because he's promised to lead us to green pastures, to lead us beside still waters, you know, to restore our souls, to fix what is broken within us. You know, we need to follow our shepherd who will walk through us no matter what circumstances we go through, we need to follow our shepherd because he will lead us home. He will lead us to the place where we need to be. That's who we need to be following. Myth number three. Well, God just wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Now, church, this sounds logical on, on the surface. I mean, it sounds, it just sounds airtight um, because because really the search for happiness is a universal search. And so every living person, regardless of your ethnicity or you know, your continent or you know, where you've lived or when you've lived, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Every, every person seeks happiness. So it has a ring of truth to it. But it's, but it's really just a myth. You know, that um, great theologian and wife of Pastor Joel Osteen, Victoria Osteen, she says it like this. She says, uh, let me just show you this quote. She says, just do good for your own self, she says. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. Now that's Victoria Osteen. Here's my question. Is that true? Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? Well, it's not true according to Scripture. Because, because what I would submit to you is this, that God's, God's main concern for us is not our happiness. It's our holiness. That God's main concern for us is not our happiness as defined by health and wealth and personal success. But I would submit to you that God's ultimate priority and ultimate concern for us is our holiness, our our consecration to him our walking with him you know jared wilson's a pastor and he uses this illustration about just the difficulty of life and and uh he he kind of summarizes life this way i uh, he he talks about you know we we come into this world as a result of a very painful process 
called pregnancy and labor. And even if you had an epidural and medication to go along with it, it was still a very painful process, uh, pregnancy and labor. And so we were the result of that. And then finally, you know, so we caused a lot of great pain for our, our mom, right? So, uh, so that's, that's just the truth. And so then we come into the world. We're finally born into the world, and we, we come crying into the world. We come cold and wet into this world. Not a great start. You know, it kind of sets the tone for the whole thing, right? And, and then, and then we, we start growing and maturing. We move into childhood. And, and really the truth is, you know, there are times when we're happy as children, no doubt. But there are also times when we're not happy as children. We're frustrated because we're not getting our way. And then, you know, we finally mature a little bit and we get better at managing our emotions and our expectations. And, and then when we're kids, we just long for the day that we're teenagers, and we think, okay, well, that's when I'm going to be happy, when I'll have the freedom of a teenager. And then we get to be teenagers, and then, and then we long for that day that we're going to be young adults, right? And, and, then, and then we get to be young adults, we're like, man, if I could just get out of, you know, get out of high school, get out of college, you know, get out of trade school, whatever, if I could just have my own job and start my own life, and, and uh, then I'll be happy. And then we get there, and then we think, oh, man, if I could just be married, I could just be married. Yeah, that would be great. And then we get married. And then we start thinking, if I could just have kids, then, you know, then, then that would make us happy. And then we have kids. We're like, man, if they could just graduate and leave the house, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you ever said that. but. Um. And what's interesting about that, I mean, think about it, church. Through every stage of life that we go through, there's fresh hurts. There's unrealized dreams there's unmet expectations there's fear there's stress there's worry there's grief is there not and and then not only that then you grow old and everything starts breaking down and then you die now that i've thoroughly cheered you up about life um, is that not life and then sprinkled every now and then is you know, a family vacation that was really fun or a walk on the beach where you saw the sunrise and sunset, you know, or maybe you got to go to a really cool sporting event, you know, this, you know uh, in your life or maybe a concert or a musical or something. And, 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 and you just kind of experience moments of transcendence where you're like, wow, this, this is good. You know, this is really good. And, uh, and so we, we, you know, if we need those things because they remind us, you know, life's worth living. But if you don't have enough of those things, you start to think life's not worth living. And, and sadly, you know, there are a lot of people that really turn away from God because of the disappointment of how their life has turned out. And part of that is they believe God owes them happiness. That God owes them, that God owes them health and wealth and personal success. And, uh, and it's just, it's just a myth. I, I want to read to you the uh, about me section on the Apostle Paul's personal blog. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 11. This is kind of his biography. All right, I just want to just share this with you. Uh, I think you've seen this before, but he, he's talking about, you know, kind of his life. He's kind of thinking about all that he's accomplished. And he says, five times I've received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
uh, a night and day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, uh, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of, the, of my anxiety for, for all the churches. That's just kind of a quick rundown of how his life's gone. Just kind of a quick summary. I would love Joel Osteen to preach on that passage. That would be an interesting, be an interesting sermon right there. And, and, and the reality is this. If this is a description of somebody who has consecrated his life to God completely, is there any hope for the rest of us, right? You, you know what I'm saying? Like if this is, if this is where God, God's blessing leads you, uh, Man, this is, this is really a challenge. And I think, I think what it speaks to is this truth that God's priority for us is not our happiness and our comfort and our personal success and our fame. I think his priority for us is our holiness and our growth and character. I really do. You see, being, being holy means being set apart for God. You could see this all over scripture you see it in first peter 1 15 i think this was the best summary that i could give you peter writes this but as he who's called you is holy so be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for i am holy you see it's not that god doesn't care about your happiness i think a better way of saying it is this that god knows god's more concerned about our holiness because our happiness flows out of our holiness it's called joy. And what God is pursuing for us is a deeper joy. And not just comfort and personal success. And that is what God has promised to us. And you see this in John 16, 24. Until now you've not asked, you know, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. That's what he wants for his people joy and uh that's what he can give and church i'll just can i just shoot straight with you joy doesn't come from pornography joy doesn't come from money joy doesn't come from feeling good and from stuff and accomplishment joy comes from knowing and walking with god and uh, you can know joy because you know Jesus. And you can know Jesus because he's the truth. All right, so let me, let me just kind of share with you as we think about these myths. How do, you, how do we turn to the truth, right? We, we don't want to wander into myths. But how can we turn towards the truth? Let me just share with you three quick ways. Number one, it starts with learning the truth. It starts really with learning the truth. That if we're going to be people of truth, then we have to learn the truth. And, and what that means is, is we need to learn God's word. Because, because the reality is, I can't build my life on truth if I don't know the truth. You know, Jesus taught the greatest sermon that's ever been preached and he, he closed it this way. He talked about two guys that go out and build houses. And he said, anybody... Any, you know, think about the man. He says, 
who hears the words of mine, hears my word, I preach the truth, and he hears the truth, and he, and he applies the truth to his life. He is, is like a man who builds a house on a rock. And the winds are going to blow, and the rains are going to come down, and the floodwaters are going to rise, and that house is not going to be moved because it's built on a, on a solid foundation, the truth of my teaching. But then Jesus contrasts it with somebody else who hears the truth, but he doesn't apply it, he doesn't know it, he doesn't, he doesn't live it, and he said that man is like a man who builds his house on the sand. And the, you know, the winds are going to blow, and the rains are going to come down, and the currents are going to you know, flow right by that house and sweep it away. Why? Because it doesn't have an adequate foundation. And what Jesus is telling us is this, that there are going to be storms in your life and in mine. There's going to be financial storms. There's going to be physical storms. There's going to be relational storms. There's going to be emotional storms. And you can either build your life on the truth, or you can build your life on trends. You can build your life on feelings or you can build your life on facts. You can build your life on certainty or you can build your life on popularity. And the reason why we're doing this series is because we need to, we need to examine the myths of the culture in light of the truth of God's word because the reality is the myths of the culture are not adequate to sustain the storms of life. They're just not. They can't handle it. But you got to know the truth. And you've got to devote yourself to the truth. You've got to devote yourself to God's word. It won't, it won't come any other way. And so you've got to make a commitment in your life that says, you know, the word of God is central to me. And, uh, and so it's going to be central to my entire life. You know, uh, Stephanie and, and London Dotson are longtime members of Stones, and three years ago, they made a commitment to learn the truth of God's Word, and I asked them uh, just via video to share uh, really about the difference that God's Word has made in their life. So watch, watch the screen behind me. I was listening to a podcast, and the guest on the podcast um, was talking about the importance of reading the Bible and having that knowledge if you teach the Bible in any capacity. And since I'm a teacher by trade, I understood that in order to teach it to other people, I needed to know my content forwards, backwards. And I teach the three-year-olds here at church, and so I wanted to make sure that what I was teaching them was accurate and that I had the understanding in my heart. And so that really challenged me. And once I finished the first year, I kind of threw it out at the table at dinner time. Who wants to do it with me? Um, and London was the only taker. Now, I assume later on, as the years go on, somebody else will want to do it with us. Um, so last year, we did do it together, and then we had two other friends that did it with us. So that was really fun. Yeah, I learned so much from doing it. I saw my mom do it and how it just became part of her life and her doing it every day. And so I wanted to see like how that worked in her life. So when I started it, I learned just so much and how God is in every situation and He's in everything. And I just learned so much about His character and what He's done and to seeing, looking for Him in every situation, good and bad, and just always knowing that He's with me and that I can talk to Him no matter what or when. I would say I've grown just my worry and my anxiety has decreased because I've seen Him 
faithful day after day in the pages of the Bible. And so it's easy to correlate that to my life and to know that if he's going to be faithful through all of that, that, then he's going to be faithful with me. It's been a worthwhile investment for me because I think about all of the meaningless things that I do throughout the day. And I used to say, I don't have time to read the whole Bible. Um, and then when I really sat down and thought about the time that I waste during the day, you know, scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or watching meaningless TV, which is not bad, but I knew that I could carve out some meaningful time with God. And it has 100% been worth it because just like London said, it changes your perspective throughout the day. And when you do it first thing in the morning, especially, we're looking for Him, we're thinking about Him, He's on our mind. Um, we're ready to, to spark conversations with other people because we've been reading it. And He'll show us something during the day that we'll think back to what we've read and we'll be able to respond to it in a way that comes from His Word rather than maybe the first thing that comes to our mind. I would encourage people to start reading the Bible and getting into it because it's something you don't really realize that's missing from your life. You know, you're just going through every day, but it's something that really impacts you and it just brings you more joy and happiness. And so I think it's definitely helped me with just like my mood and how I treat others. And so I think that could help anybody in this world. So I would definitely recommend it to somebody. I do. I recommend it all the time. Um, and and ask people to join me. And I think um, just coming here on Sundays and realizing that Sundays aren't just for learning God's Word, that that's my responsibility all throughout the week. And Sundays are for, you know, worshiping the God that I'm learning about and being with other believers. And that has really um, changed. Knowing knowing more about God, knowing more about His faithfulness and His plan for us, and that it's not always going to end up um, with a nice bow on top, that there are some really dark things that happen, um, just like there are dark things that happen in the world today, but knowing that He's always there for us, He never leaves His people, and that's what I've loved seeing throughout the, the pages of the Bible, is that He, he doesn't ever leave us, and He won't. Um, and so that's been really encouraging for me. And that's why I would encourage others to read it because there's so much going on right now. And just to know his faithfulness is, is very impactful. Can we give uh, London and Steph a round of applause today? So I, I really just want to challenge you that you need to learn the truth. And we're, we're not talking about information. We're talking about knowing a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and knowing that he's with you and he walks with you through the course of your life. I would challenge you uh, to go to uversion.com and download the Uversion Bible app. There are Bible reading plans on uversion.com. You can pick your own pace. You want to read through the Bible the entire year. Uh, there's still time you know, for you to do that. But I want to encourage you uh, to make a commitment to that. Now, you know, it's middle of January. You know, a lot of people have already given up on their New Year's goals, but you can start now and be ahead of everybody else. So uh, we also have Bible reading plans at the uh, information counter printed out for you. So you can just stop by there on your way out and, uh, and grab those. And you'll notice that there's a card in the seat in front of you that looks just like this. And I want you to go ahead and just grab that and, uh, and just look at it. There are, these are our upcoming opportunities 
for you to grow in the knowledge of God's word. These are Bible classes, Bible studies for men and women, uh, D groups. Uh, we have biblical counseling training. We have so many opportunities for you to take your next step, for you to grow in your knowledge of God's word. Uh, on the back, there are serving opportunities. Uh, but the main thing I really want you to be thinking about is how are you going to grow and learn the truth this year? So all you have to do is just kind of look those over. And then when you're ready to kind of sign up, fill it out at the bottom on the back and then turn that in at the, at the info counter. But there's so many great opportunities for you to jump in. So everybody get it? All right, let me share a couple more things and then I'm done. You need, number one, to learn the truth. But secondly, you need to discern what is false. And what I mean by that is, as you learn the truth, you're going to be able to distinguish between truth and error. You're going to be able to determine, hey, that's not really scriptural, what I'm being taught. You're, you're going to recognize what is false. And so as, as, the, as the culture bombards us with beliefs and myths and ideas that are counter to Christ, we're going to recognize those as we grow in the truth. And so Paul talks about this in Colossians 2, 2, 8. Notice, notice what he says. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive to philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That's demonic spirits, basically. And not according to Christ. So there's certain philosophies that exist out there that that are deceptive and will lead you into bondage and captivity. They're not according to Christ. And so could you recognize the difference? Well, my dream, my prayer for you is that you would be able to discern what is false. I, I love the passage in the book of Acts chapter 17 where Paul and Silas, they go and preach to the Bereans. And I wanna show you how the Bereans responded to their preaching. This is Acts 17, 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They received the teaching of Paul and Silas, but notice how they received it. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans were open and receptive, but they always checked everything Paul and Silas said as it, as it lined up with the Old Testament, just to make sure that they were not getting something that is false. Church, listen to me. You need to do that with me every single Sunday, with all of us that preach. You need to make sure that everything we're preaching to you is based on God's word. And so that's my encouragement to you, to, to be a discerning people in a world filled with myths and lies. Then lastly, I want to challenge you to turn from the world, to turn away from the world. You need to learn the truth, discern what is false, and then you need to turn from the world. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when he talks about not being conformed to the world, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the ideas and the beliefs and the values that our culture puts, puts on us every single day. Don't be conformed to the, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Be changed 
by the renewing of your mind as you focus your mind on the truth of God's word. It changes you. It brings joy. It brings light. It brings love. It brings wisdom. It brings freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, let me just kind of close with this because I know we're, we're kind of running over. Jesus said in John 10, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what he's saying is this, the truth is a person and you can know the person of Jesus Christ. You can know him because he's revealed himself. And so I want to challenge you. I want to ask you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him? Have you taken that step of, of, of really committing your life and your heart and the focus of your life to living for Jesus and being a disciple of his? You can do that today. My second question is this. Are you committed to being people of the word? Do you know his truth? Because you need to make that commitment today. And so let's close in prayer and then, then I'll send you out of here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, that we can know the truth, that we can grow in our knowledge of the truth. Thank you, God, that the truth is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so, God, I just pray that, that you would just stir within us a desire, a love for your word, a greater affection for your son, Jesus. God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be a discerning people, that we could distinguish myth from error and truth from lies. God, that we would walk in the freedom that you have for us. And so, God, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give ourselves wholly to you. No holding back. And so, God, we ask that as we leave this place, your presence, your goodness, your love, we realize, go with us. We realize it because your word says it. Thank you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.